This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. And we're from Car Stuff. We're the podcast that covers everything that floats, flies, swims, or drives. Adventures, thrills, chills, literally planes, trains, and automobiles. That's right. And you can find all of our episodes on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, and really anywhere else you get your podcast. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. When I was in Iceland back in the spring, I learned a very tiny bit about the Cod Wars. Uh, longtime listeners to the show will probably notice some similarities between the thing that we're going to talk about today and the Chesapeake Bay Oyster Wars, which we talked about back in 2013. But while the Chesapeake Bay conflict was mostly confined to the states of Virginia and Maryland... The Cod Wars were an international dispute that wound up having a lot more long-lasting ramifications in both the United Kingdom and in Iceland. So after I got home from the strip where I learned that the Cod Wars had happened, I put them on a potential episode list. And then all of a sudden, over the last week or so, multiple other people, sort of apropos of nothing, said, hey, would you talk about the Cod Wars? Um and that included most recently Gemma and Steve. So I thought, okay, I guess I'll put Cod Wars at the top of the list. It had been kind of languishing there, and now we're going to do it. Uh, I do want to be clear that this is definitely not the only fishing dispute that has ever happened in these particular waters, but it's definitely one of the most famous. Uh, and in some ways, it's the weirdest and the most comical, even though it was not actually funny to the people it was happening to. Like... It sounds funny, but a lot of people's livelihoods were deeply at stake in the middle of this thing that sounds sort of comedic. So, to give you the setup, Iceland and the United Kingdom are two relatively small island nations. The UK is a little more than 94,000 square miles, and Iceland is a little less than 40,000 square miles. That's about 243,000 square kilometers and 103,000 square kilometers, respectively. The UK, however, has much more habitable land than Iceland does. The middle of Iceland is mountainous, and it's covered in glaciers, and also in many places volcanic, so nearly all of its population lives relatively close to the coast. It is completely unsurprising that two relatively small island nations, one of which is only really habitable along the coastline, have historically relied on fishing, both as an industry and for the nation's cuisine. As we discussed in our podcast about the volcanic eruption on the island of Hamei, fishing is critically important to Iceland's economy. Today, the fishing industry in Iceland employs about 11,000 people, which is a little more than 4% of Iceland's total workforce. And the fishing industry directly contributes to about 11% of Iceland, of the Icelandic GDP and indirectly a full quarter of Iceland's GDP. About 40% of Iceland's export earnings come from fish today, with cod being a primary export. And before the 1970s, almost 90% of Iceland's exports were fish. 
Meanwhile, Britain's fishing industry employs a little under 12,000 fishers today, so about the same size as Iceland's industry. But because the UK's population and economy are so much larger, it's really a much smaller proportion of the UK economy as a whole. The UK has a population of 64 million, compared to 323,000 in Iceland. Marine fishing is about uh, 0.05% of the British GDP, and all forms of fishing together make up about 0.07% of the British GDP. Prior to the 1950s, though, fishing was a much bigger part of the British economy, especially in fishing port cities like Hull, Grimsby, and Fleetwood. In these ports, fishing trawlers were the primary employer, and most of the fishing fleet that sailed from these ports did what's known as distant water fishing. So boats would leave these ports in Britain, and they would travel hundreds of miles to fish in the waters around Iceland. In addition to catching a lot of cod, Britain ate, and continues to eat for that matter, a lot of cod. In the 1950s and 1960s, 430,000 tons of cod were being eaten in Britain annually, overwhelmingly in the form of fish and chips. Britain continues to eat more cod than anywhere else in the world. A third of the cod in the world and 85% of the cod caught in European waters. So yeah, the Iceland and Britain were united by the fact that there's lots of cod around Iceland and Britain was eating so much of almost, it. So, almost all of it. <laughs> almost all the cod. Uh because fish and chips. I mean it's it's delicious and also kind of astounding just how much was being eaten. Another important piece of background information in all of this story has to do with the idea of international waters and how nations get to decide which parts of the ocean are theirs. The idea that a nation with a coastline has rights to a certain amount of the ocean around it has existed for centuries, and a nation's territorial waters extend a certain distance past its coast, and then beyond that are international waters. Starting in the 1700s in Europe and the Americas, a nation's territorial waters typically extended about three miles past the coastline, although there were definitely exceptions with nations claiming more or less. Prior to its independence in 1944, Iceland was a part of Denmark. And according to the Anglo-Danish Territorial Waters Agreement, it, like so many other nations, followed that three-mile limit. That agreement was set to expire in 1951, but when Iceland became independent from Denmark, it got to work setting its own terms for where other nations could fish immediately. Iceland had two primary motivations for re-evaluating its fishing boundaries. One was that fishing was so enormously critical to its own economy that it wanted to make sure its own fishing fleet had the greatest advantage. Iceland sort of viewed this situation as a zero-sum game. Other nations that were taking fish out of the waters around Iceland were taking them from Iceland because Iceland had so few other industries or or natural resources to, to add to its economy. The other was that Iceland was becoming increasingly concerned about the health of the fish stocks around it and the threat of overfishing. So banning other nations from fishing closer to its shores was a way to try to keep Icelandic fishers fishing while ideally lowering the risk of depleting those fish populations. 
As a result, on May 15th of 1952, Iceland extended the line from three miles to four. And this wasn't the first push of its territorial water since becoming independent, but it was the first extension that affected a part of the sea that Britain had been using for its fishing. Yeah, some of the prior extension was more to the north, which was not as much of a British fishing ground. Uh, Britain was not happy about this change. There was more shelter available in bad weather three miles out compared to four miles out. Uh, and then, of course, there was just the principle of the thing. Britons who had been making their livelihoods through fishing for generations and who lived in port cities where fishing was the biggest industry were basically being shut out of a strip of the sea that they'd historically had access to. When Iceland set its new line at four miles, flags flew at half-mast in British distant water fishing ports. The Grimsby Evening Telegraph called it Black Thursday. In spite of this new law, the four-mile zone around Iceland did not make that big of a difference to British distant water fishing boats. A lot of them had already been crossing the three-mile line when fish were scarce beyond it. A number of captains and owners also thought that the fine that came with crossing that four-mile line was worth the risk if it meant better fishing on the other side of the line. All in all, even though there was a bit of cat and mouse darting around the line, British captains and crews surrendered when they realized they were caught. And Icelandic Coast Guard personnel were always honest and fair in court cases over illegal fishing. Aside from some tomfoolery, people on both sides of this dispute were generally respectful and professional about it. Yeah, in, in spite of all the, like, the, the flying of the flags at half-mast and the Gittering back and forth across the line where people weren't really supposed to be. You know, when the Coast Guard showed up and was like, you're not supposed to be here, they would be like, yeah, you're, you got us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the UK also took the very reasonable course of action of taking their dispute with Iceland before the International Court of Justice. When Iceland's four-mile limit was upheld, Britain responded by banning Icelandic fishing vessels from landing their fish in Britain. Since Britain, as we said earlier, was buying most of Iceland's cod, and, I mean, British British cod catches were not nearly enough to keep the nation supplied in fish and ships, this basically was an economic sanction, sanction against Iceland, but Iceland did not back down. And this was only the first of several times that Iceland would move its fishing boundary. And we're going to talk about where things stopped being so sort of cordial and respectful and started to really get ugly after we have uh, a brief sponsor break. You know that great feeling when you can, like, accomplish something just by clicking around with your mouse? Ooh, I love marking stuff off the list. Oh, yeah, me too. And it can get even more convenient than that. You can get all your mailing and shipping done without even leaving your desk thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your very own personal post office that never, ever closes. So it is super convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and your printer and then just hand your mail over to the person who delivers it to you. Or, you know, if you do want to take a little walk, drop it in a mailbox. Uh, you will never have to go to the post office again. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. That is a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. 
That is stamps.com and enter stuff. And now we will get back to our story. In 1958, the international community participated in the first international conference on the law of the sea. The UN's International Law Commission had been discussing and evaluating maritime international law for nearly a decade. But this was the first conference that was specifically devoted to international maritime law. Eighty-six states participated in this conference. Fishing, we should point out, was certainly not the only thing being discussed at the conference. Resolutions were adopted regarding nuclear tests, radioactive pollution of the oceans, and conservation. And various smaller nations suggested a major expansion of the commonly used three-mile limit between international and territorial waters. The new proposed limit, a 12-mile economic exclusion zone around a nation's coast. Most larger nations resisted this idea for reasons ranging from economic unfairness to concerns that their navies could not effectively maneuver or patrol with that much of the sea off limits. However, when Iceland then expanded its exclusionary zone to 12 miles in 1958, part of its argument was that that 12 miles was eventually going to be international law anyway. And while that previous move from three miles to four miles had been met with flags at half-mast in Britain's port towns, the jump to 12 miles was genuinely alarming. The zone between four and 12 miles from Iceland's coast was prime fishing territory for Britain's distant water fishing fleet. Shutting Britain out of 12 miles around Iceland had the potential to completely disrupt the fishing industry. Aside from really genuine concerns about the British economy, especially in these port cities, Britain was also really frustrated on principle. I understand this. I'm a person who gets colossally frustrated on principle. As had been the case with that four-mile line, the 12-mile line was cutting Britain out of waters that it had historically had access to and felt entitled to. And then there was an emotional weight to all of it. In the cities that were home to Britain's distant water fishing fleets, fishing was really at the heart of the community and of people's identities. So pushing out distant water fishing felt like it was stripping people of their way of life and of something that they felt like was a core part of who they were. Also, there's the whole fish and chip thing again. (laughs) Which is also part of like the identity issue. Yes. Like, in the United States, fish and chips in a lot of places are just, like, they're just sort of standard pub food, right? But in in the 50s and 60s in Britain, fish and chips was really a working-class staple. And, like, chippies were places that that sold fish and chips, and, like, there's a whole cultural layer to the existence (laughs) and the consumption of of fish and chips that... um, does not have the quite the same weight in most of the United States. Yeah. Uh, and the UK was not the only nation affected by this expansion in Iceland's territorial waters. Belgium, West Germany, and the Faroe Islands were among the other nations fishing in that same area. But it was the British fishing fleet that was making the most use of it among the international community. And it was Britain that became the most vocal in wanting continued access to that 4 to 12 mile zone. 
Those cat and mouse shenanigans that had happened at the four mile line kicked up several notches in the four to 12 mile zone around Iceland. As one might expect, Iceland deployed its Coast Guard to try to enforce the policy, and it allowed officials to board British ships and arrest their crews for fishing in waters where they were not supposed to be. In response, Britain deployed ships from the Royal Navy to protect the trawlers, essentially mandating that the trawlers fish in areas where the Royal Navy was patrolling. And the trawlers used nets to try to keep Icelandic inspectors from boarding, as well as spraying boarding parties with hoses and trying to use spears to puncture the rubber dinghies the Coast Guard used for boarding. When a trawler was boarded, they'd often call in the Royal Navy to assist. And on at least one occasion, the Royal Navy then refused to let the Icelandic Coast Guard officials go back to their own vessel. It instead kept them on board as guests, in quotation marks, of the crown. One boarding party was eventually put into a little boat off the coast of Keflavik and allowed to row back to shore there. And this really irritated the people that were uh, were working at the NATO base in Keflavik because they were like, what do you mean there is a British warship right there that just dropped you <laughs> off in the water? <laughs> Because Iceland had about six gunboats compared to the 37 Royal Navy ships that Britain had deployed, Iceland didn't really feel comfortable making a direct assault on the British force. Instead, Iceland kept thorough records of the names and numbers of all of the British ships that broke the 12-mile limit. I kind of love fighting it with bureaucracy, and I don't even understand why. (laughs) Yeah, it, yeah. This dispute wound up being settled with a compromise in 1961. Britain ultimately agreed to respect the 12-mile limit in exchange for a three-year period to phase out the distant water fishing in the 12-mile zone. Once this agreement was reached, Iceland destroyed all those records of who all had been illegally fishing in the 12-mile zone, which I also am kind of charmed by. Yes. It's like, this is going on your permanent record. Okay, now we're cool. We could get rid of that permanent record. (laughs) Uh, In the agreement, Iceland also acknowledged that it would continue to consider extending the border even further, but would give Britain advance notice if this were to happen. Quote, the Icelandic government will continue to work for the implementation of the Althing Resolution of 5 May 1959 regarding the extension of fisheries jurisdiction around Iceland, but shall give to the United Kingdom government six months notice of such extension, and in case of a dispute in relation to such extension, the matter shall, at the request of either party, be referred to the International Court of Justice." Yes, that was basically referring to a a resolution that had been put out a couple years before about possibly having an even bigger exclusion zone. And then on July 14th of 1971, the government of Iceland released a new policy statement, which said, quote, the fisheries agreements with the United Kingdom and the Federal German Republic shall be terminated and a resolution be made about an extension of the fishery limit up to 50 nautical miles from the baselines, effective not later than 1 September 1972. So at this point, we've gone from 3 miles to 4 miles to 12 miles to 50 miles. Yeah, that's a big jump. I can imagine if you are part of the fishing industry, uh, the knee-jerk reaction could be irate at that point. Uh, and that would explain why this is where things got really, really heated between the UK and Iceland. 
The United Kingdom once again took its dispute to the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which found in Britain's favor. But Iceland argued that the court did not have jurisdiction. Iceland was, at this point, incredibly frustrated and alarmed over the condition of its fishing stocks. Stocks of the Icelandic herring had dropped precipitously, almost to nothing, and Iceland was concerned that cod were headed for the same fate. They had made repeated calls for international discussions on conservation of fish stocks and sustainable fishing practices, and none of that had gotten enough attention for Iceland to really feel secure in the future uh, of of a nation that was basically dependent on fishing. Like at this point, and even still today in a lot of ways, if the if the fishing industry in Iceland is gone, Iceland as a nation cannot survive. And so you know, even though there were some nations that were willing to talk about more uh, conservation-oriented fishing practices, at this point in the 70s, Iceland was like, no, really, we will die as a nation if we don't look after these fish. And to make matters worse from the British point of view, also in 1972, the United Kingdom joined the common market. And this was basically an approach by the European Economic Community that gave all its members equal access to the territorial waters of all the other members after a grace period. Iceland, not being a member of the European Economic Community, was not affected. But the UK was concerned about what it would mean for its own fishing industry to give the rest of the European Economic Community access to its fishing grounds. The UK, to the UK fishing fleet, those waters off the coast of Iceland became even more important. So the UK once again deployed the Royal Navy to protect its distant water trawlers. And during the previous dispute, the trawlers were basically supposed to stick with the Navy. And now they were trying to do it the other way around. The trawlers would go where they needed to fish, and the Navy would follow them to protect them. In other words, the UK had decided not to respect that 50-mile line. And we're going to talk about the fallout from that a little bit more after we once again pause for a word from a sponsor. This is a sponsor we both use and love, and we talk about them all the time because they're great. I literally talk about this sponsor too, my friends, not on the show. Yep, yep, that is <laughs> Well, I don't know if I really talk about it too, my friends, but I will say that I was on vacation last week, and I on purpose had a pair of me undies for every day of vacation. Yep. I do the same. Uh, it, it doesn't matter, you know, how you dress, what, if you tend to dress up or dress down. Probably you're wearing underwear underneath your clothes. Again, we don't judge if you don't, but most people are. And frankly, you want them to be the best and most comfortable underwear you can possibly manage. And that is why Me Undies is here. Every pair of Me Undies is made from sustainably sourced modal. This is a fabric that is twice as soft as cotton. It's amazingly soft. It has just the most beautiful hand. I wish I could just buy a bunch of their fabric and make clothes with it. Uh, <laughs> nothing can quite describe the fit and feel of MeUndies, but once you try them on, you will totally understand why they're called the world's most comfortable underwear. And if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they are free, no questions asked. They have dozens of styles and adorable limited edition prints to help you make a statement with your underwear. Whether anyone else can see them or not, you know if you have fabulous underwear on and it will make your whole day better. So, shipping is free 
free in the U.S. and Canada, and you can save up to $8 a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. Get the subscription or a single pair. Get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash history. That's MeUndies, M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S dot com slash history for 20% off your first order. Again, MeUndies.com slash history. The first day that British ships made their way across the newly established 50-mile line around Iceland, they covered up their names and numbers on their ships and hoisted uh, pirate flags. Iceland's Coast Guard was mostly amused at this course of action because at this point they had been patrolling these waters with these British trawlers for years. And they were sort of like, do you think we really can't recognize your ship without the name on it? Like, we know what your ship looks like. We know who you are. It's the Clark Kent glasses disguise of the sea. It was absolutely the Clark Kent glasses disguise of the sea. It really is. And this time around, things really did start, though. As much as we're laughing now, uh, they became very serious and physical between Iceland and the UK. Toward the end of the previous dispute, Iceland had developed a trawling net cutter. And this was essentially a minesweeper modified with a road grading blade that was dragged through the water behind a boat. So when it hit the high-tension trawling wires, it would cut right through them. This was the part I learned at a museum in Iceland, where I was like, whoa, the the Icelandic Coast Guard was just cutting through trawling nets? That's fascinating. However, the crews of the British trawlers were horrified and alarmed at this invention. The wires of these trawling nets, I mean, these are enormous nets that are under the water and they fill up with fish. They are under a whole lot of tension. So it was within the realm of possibility that a wire that had been cut could rebound and literally cut someone in half. Iceland insisted that this cutting was happening far enough below the surface of the water that this was not a risk and there wasn't a risk to human life because all of this energy that was being dissipated when the wire was cut basically was was dissipated in the traveling through the water. Um, even so, even if if there wasn't a risk, and I think you can argue that either way, the loss of the trawling net itself and of the time and energy that you had put into putting it together and deploying it and whatever time you had spent fishing with it uh, basically meant that people were were losing a lot of work and equipment in this process. The Icelandic Coast Guard was vastly outnumbered. It had six Coast Guard vessels plus two Polish-built trawlers retrofitted for the purpose. Britain, on the other hand, had a total of 29 ships earmarked for the purpose, with six to nine of them in Icelandic water at any given time. In addition to those frigates were seven supply ships, nine tugboats, and three artillery ships to protect its 40 trawlers. Soon, in spite of being so heavily outnumbered, Icelandic vessels started intentionally ramming British Royal Navy ships and trawlers. This actually, there was one collision that did lead to the death of an Icelandic officer. Britain responded by trying to update its trawler fleet by radio about the positions of Iceland's vessels. So the Icelandic Coast Guard started recording Britain's transmissions on the positions of where the Icelandic vessels were and then replaying them at a later date to sow confusion. 
When Britain realized that that was happening, their ships began to spread the word by radio to disregard the prior message. So the Icelandic Coast Guard recorded that, too, to replay it later on. It's a little Ghost Army-esque at that point, where they're doing, like, these false soundscapes. May 26, 1973, an Icelandic ship shelled a British trawler. Also in May, Iceland banned British planes from landing at Keflavik Air Base. That October, the UK and Iceland finally agreed to limit the number of British ships in Icelandic waters, limit the size of the catch, and, thankfully, stop ramming each other. So this is kind of an uneasy peace that lasted for a couple of years, but in 1975, Iceland extended its maritime border again to 200 miles. So now we've gone <laughs> 3, 4, 12, 50, 200 once again, Britain refused to res- uh, to respect yet another expansion in the exclusionary zone around Iceland. Negoti- negotiations really quickly broke down. Iceland threatened to close the NATO base at Keflavik entirely and to end diplomatic relations with Britain. The international community became really alarmed. All of these conflicts were running parallel to the Cold War, and there were some concerns that Iceland, which was strategically placed between Russia and North America might, under all of this pressure and resistance from Britain, just abandon its other diplomatic ties in favor of allying with Russia. Eventually, after numerous rammings and even some shelling caused damage to ships on both sides of the conflict, the Secretary General of NATO, Dr. Joseph Lunds, had to mediate an agreement between Iceland and the UK. And that was signed in June of 1976. It upheld Iceland's 200-mile exclusion zone, and it specified that Britain could have a maximum of 24 trawlers in that zone at any given time. Conservation zones were established where no fishing would be allowed. And after six months, there would be no more fishing in the 200-mile zone. When those six months were up, Britain's distant water fishing fleet was effectively put out of business. Trawler owners were given some restitution for the loss of their businesses, and the government had reassured the distant water fishing industry to expect retraining for other work, as well as compensation for basically having been made redundant. However, that support did not actually materialize. In 1983, Britain's Fishermen's Association was formed to start fighting for compensation, and this was a battle that went on until July of 2000, when a settlement of 26 million pounds was uh, was earmarked for people who had been put out of work as a consequence of this international agreement. Fish stocks began to be depleted anyway, with Iceland needing to send boats farther afield, which turned into conflict with other nations as well, particularly Russia and Norway. Yeah, those stocks have rebounded a lot now, but if if you look at charts of the fish populations around Iceland, there's like a decline over the 60s and then a cliff. And then they are very alarmingly low and then they start to recover. Uh, there's also a documentary. It was actually an Icelandic documentary, but it aired on the BBC. And one of the Icelandic officials that was interviewed for it talked about going to Britain, visiting some of these ports that had been the distant water fishing ports, seeing all of these decommissioned ships just sort of derelict there in the port. Uh, and it reconfirming for him, okay, seriously, we have got to, we have got to conserve our fishing stocks because as a result of our trying to do that, all of these people were put out of work and lost their livelihoods. Um, 
which I like, I thought was a, an interesting sentiment to come back to you. Cause at, at that point it was years after the decisions had all been made. I like the part with the pirate flags. That's my pi- favorite part. Well, and there's also, there were things about like the British ships basically throwing potatoes at people. <laughs> uh, at, I mean, at the, at the Icelandic ships. So the, this documentary, documentary is really super interesting because you hear from people who were, who were on these ships and were, uh, were making living, making their living fishing. Uh, and it really does seem like, especially through the first, the first couple of incidents where it moved from three miles to four and from four to 12, that there was kind of a weird spirit of camaraderie where, where the British, uh, the British fishermen would be like, uh, yeah, we're going to do this anyway. And also throw potatoes at you. And Iceland was like, that's not cool, but we're going to totally be fair (laughs) when we arrest you and take you to court for your, uh, unsanctioned (laughs) fishing activities. Um, it definitely, though, just just ruined the economy of some particular port cities. And then when you look at Britain's fishing industry today, it is completely different than it was up through 1970. And also a lot of the fish that used to be uh, used to be fished through distant water fishing fleets are instead now uh, raised through aquaculture. So they're basically farmed instead of um, having this whole international agreement to to send trawlers to other international waters to try to fish. Yeah. Phew. Yeah. Do you, do you have some listener mail that is less grown-up talk? <laughs> kind of. It's another thing about food. I mean, we kept saying fish and chips. Yeah, I kind of want some, some fish and chips. I do love fish and chips. Me too. Um, so... Uh, this is from Mindy, and every time I think we've gotten the best email about margarine, we get another email about margarine, and Mindy's uh, email is titled, The Real Jewish Aspect of Oleo Margarine. Jews sold it and were excommunicated for doing so. And it says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'd been debating whether or not to write you after your Butter versus Margarine podcast, but hearing you read two listener emails about the Jewish aspect of this story really clinched it. One of my friends, a genealogist named Tracy Hepps, has given a number of lectures on her, quote, Jewish margarine crime family. In her talk, The Margarine Moonshiners from Minsk, she pointed out how this substance, which was made from beef tallow mixed with milk, was being sold as real butter to kosher households. Needless to say, the Jewish community was extremely upset with her ancestors, some of whom ended up in Leavenworth. In fact, a brother-in-law had even been excommunicated for selling margarine made out of pig fat mixed with milk and claiming it was butter. While margarine is now loved by practically every kosher household, it definitely wasn't at the time. If you ever want to do a margarine follow-up podcast, your take on the Wasoki Jewish margarine crime family would be a lot of fun. In later lectures, she updates the story to include more members than the original three she had uncovered. By the time of her first lecture, her margarine crime family spanned several states and included a large number of her ancestors. And then she has links to all of these lectures and uh, and other information. It is fascinating. Another thing I didn't think of... Like, I didn't think of the part about about margarine's place in kosher cooking today. Also, when we talked about margarine fraud, it did not occur to me that anyone was selling margarine 
which at the time was made out of beef tallow and dairy, which is like just by definition, not kosher. Correct. To Jewish families. Right. And this was specifically uh, like a a Jewish crime family selling it to other Jewish people. And then, of course, people were outraged when they learned about what was going on. It reminded me a little bit of when Fast Food Nation came out and it was revealed that McDonald's was flavoring their French fries with beef. Yeah. Uh, And at that point, the state of available vegetarian options in restaurants was dramatically different than it is today. And many vegetarian people were like, I've been eating that and it's flavored with beef. (laughs) I was one of those people. Uh, I I don't think my outrage was nearly as th- the same as if I had had a religious prohibition against eating uh, meat. It was just a personal prohibition, but still, that's fascinating. Many's emails fascinating. I did not get to watch the longer of the lectures, but I did watch the shorter one, and that was fascinating. We will link to them in the show notes once again, just because uh, I was not raised in a kosher household. It did not occur to me that anybody would be selling margarine as butter to Jewish people. That's awful. Don't do that. (laughs) If your margarine is made out of non-kosher ingredients, that's wrong. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History, and our Instagram is at History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and find lots of information about all kinds of stuff. And then you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have done. You will find an archive of every episode ever. So all kinds of cool stuff at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.